All right, tonight uh, we're going to spend our time looking at Psalm chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there with me. Psalm chapter 8. Uh, we've got a lot to go over this evening, so I want to make the best use of our time. So uh, let's go ahead and jump on in to this psalm. It's a psalm of David. Psalm 8 verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, there are moments in life where I believe God puts us in our place. What I mean by that is that there are encounters and experiences, there are sights and sounds that we come across in our lives that remind us of perspective. Sometimes our perspective can get skewed about many things, about ourselves, about life. and Sometimes we need to be put in positions where those things are, are adjusted. For, for example... The best thing a person with an ego could do would maybe to go stand in front of the Grand Canyon for a little while, right? Because as you stand looking at this vast expanse of God's creation, you come to the reality really quickly. You're, you're not as big as you think you are, right? Nothing brings out the emotion in a callous man's heart like the first time he holds their newborn child i remember when when hayden was born I, I never knew that i could love something so much so quickly yeah i went from this young egotistical arrogant young man macho man i guess if you will to this huge pull of emotions in just a, a split second but there are times in life where we must come face to face with reality. And this reality adjusts our perspective, even if that reality isn't, isn't what we have in our minds. And the reason why that's important is because it's only when we are operating and thinking in the bounds of reality that we can really embrace the truth about something. And that is very important when it pertains to God and our interaction with him. And that's exactly what this psalm does for us this evening. And so we're going to look at, at this psalm tonight in, in two different parts. We're, we're going to break it down because I believe David is trying to communicate two different things to us. One, we're going to spend some time talking about the necessary position of a heart that wants to carry out appropriate worship to God. What What is the necessary position of a person's heart if they desire to worship God correctly. 
And so then the second part kind of gives us uh, sort of this progression of a correct way to worship, especially in our singing. What what should our singing communicate to God that's gone on in our heart? And so, uh, of course, we're going to answer the question as we will uh, try to answer every week. What does this psalm teach us about worship? And so Psalm chapter 8 is this song written by, by David to God. And it declares praise to him directly. It communicates truth about God that is intended to move our hearts to a right perspective to where we can worship him the way he deserves. And so this is a declaration psalm as well, but it is sung directly to God. Last week, our psalm in Psalm 1 was a declaration psalm uh, about a truth about God. But David is singing this directly to him uh, tonight. Psalm 8 is also what's known as a a creation praise or a psalm of creation, which just simply means that uh, um, David uses the elements of creation uh, as this vehicle, if you will, to, to motivate him to worship. So he uses what he sees in creation to, to kind of spur himself to worship the Lord based on the, his observations. And, and let me just say this. That's the purpose of creation. The reason why God created all that we see, and as we'll see in this psalm tonight, all of these things that God created was brought forth as a testimony of his greatness. Everything in creation shouts that there is a beautiful, magnificent creator who is responsible for all this. This isn't the first psalm we'll look at that talks about creation declaring praise to the Lord. But this is a very important one. And the reason why we need to understand the purpose of creation is because the tendency in our human heart is to to twist that. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. He says that that there is this tendency for mankind to worship the creature rather than uh, the creator. And so this psalm uh, is a song of praise motivated by what David observes in creation that drives him to the creator itself, which is the reason why God put us in the middle of this creation. We're going to talk about that in greater detail in just a minute. So let's just walk through this passage quickly tonight and And let's look at the the proper position of our heart. And then there's three things that this psalm teaches us about how we get in a place of accurate worship. And so I'll tie all that together by answering our question about what this psalm teaches us about worship. So first four thing, first thing, rather not the first four things, but the first thing I want to direct our attention to in this psalm is the first four words of Psalm chapter eight. Let's look at it again. Oh, Lord, our Lord. Something very important happens right off the bat here that we need to see. The two words for Lord here are actually two different Hebrew words. The first one that David uses is Yahweh, uh, which is God's name. Um, And we know that his name is holy and should be revered. Nothing in all of creation has a name that compares to God. As a matter of fact, if you look at Jewish history, um, they would not even say Yahweh. They wouldn't even write it. Um, and so they came up with a transliterated word, Jehovah, um, which means God, but it has kind of a, a lesser weight to it. 
um, than Yahweh. But Yahweh is the name that God called himself before Moses. It is his most holy name. Okay? So David is referring to God here by his most holy name. The next use of the word Lord is different. In your Bible, if you look at it, you may notice that the first Lord is all caps, right? And the second one, uh, the second word Lord, uh, only the L is capitalized. And the reason for this is because it's a different Hebrew word. This word here is Adonai, which is used as a title more so than a name. It means Lord or Master uh, or, or Ruler. And so Yahweh describes who God is in relation to who his character, his being. But Adonai refers to his title, his position over specifically here, David. And let me kind of give you an example of, of, of kind of how we make sense of these two words. I'll use my wife as an example. When I refer to, to Laura's name, I call her what? Laura, right? Um, but Laura is also my wife. And so she carries that title with only me, right? And so to her parents, she carries a different title. It's daughter. To others, it may be friend or acquaintance, but her name remains the same. Her name is Laura, but she carries different titles or has different roles. So what David's communicating here is something very, very profound to us. His praise is directed to Yahweh. A God who is completely holy, righteous, sovereign, and just in all his ways. Let me explain a little bit about who this God is. What the word, his word says about him. Paul describes him as, as the God who made the world and everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. It is he himself who gives to mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that he is king of kings and lord of lords. He alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see. This is the God that told Moses when Moses was at the burning bush, take off your shoes because the place you are standing it's holy ground. You see, the magnificence of this God of Yahweh is one that is so powerful that we don't even think we could approach him. The Jews wouldn't. They were afraid of him. They told Moses to go before the Lord on their behalf because they knew that they could not stand before the Lord. And so there is this immense power associated with the name of God. He has the very power of life in his breath. And that's who David is addressing. And how could he address this God this way? It's because of the second term, Lord. David describes his relationship with this Yahweh as my master. The way David refers to master here is a lot different than we might. There was this sense of submission in David's heart, of course, but there's this intimacy this relatability, if you will, with God between David. The Bible says that David was a, a man after God's heart. And so David knew God, not just as Yahweh, but as Adonai, 
He embraced the Lord. He didn't run from Him. He didn't doubt Him. He embraced Him as His Lord. And so that is the first thing I want you to see, who David is actually praising. The Almighty God, but he's praising Him in a very intimate, relational way. And he says this, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so we see here David understands the weight of who he is about to praise. This word majestic means excellent and great. It refers to someone's reputation. And so David is saying that that God is the greatest that there has ever been or that can be fathomed in all the earth. There is no one like him. And David validates this statement that there's no one like him at the end of verse 1. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens. This is an important phrase here for us. This sentence refers to uh, the establishment or or the setting, the placement of glory. So it's, it's that um, God has put his glory on display, but not just in what we see, not just in, in our earth or our galaxy even. There is this glory that God has established for himself that only the angels in heaven behold right now. David's saying that God's glory, which is is really this weight of his presence, his splendor is so awesome and so far spread that there are angels in heaven whose only job is to declare that glory. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord, there was someone accompanying God, right? The seraphim, and their sole job was to fly around God and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's all they do. And so verse 1 is saying, God, I understand somewhat of how great you are, that your glory, your your presence, the splendor of your majesty reaches far beyond what I see and know about you. He's exclaiming this worth and glory of the Lord That the earth itself cannot even contain. Now, that makes verse 2 kind of confusing. And we need to spend some time explaining verse 2. Because after declaring this greatness about God in verse 1, he goes on to say, It is out of the mouth of babies and infants that you have established strength. This doesn't make a lot of sense, but what it's teaching us about worship is so Profound. Listen very closely. This reference here to to babies, infants, is a reference to those who approach God with complete humility and weakness and dependence, just like a baby. I want you to think about a baby for just a minute. When a baby is born, they are completely dependent upon whoever's caring for them, right? If they're hungry, they can't go to the refrigerator and and get something to eat by themselves. They are at the complete mercy of those who are over them. They are weak. They are dependent. They are humbled. And what David is communicating here is it's those kinds of people who are able to offer God the praise and the glory that he's worthy of. Let me ask you a question. When David declared all that greatness about God in verse 1, 
Do you think he was declaring it because God needed to know that? Absolutely not. David was declaring that for himself to remind himself of who he was speaking of. You see, David understood that if he was to approach this God and to offer him worthy praise, he could not approach him from any other position than a complete position of humility. And so as David's declaring this greatness of God, he's putting himself in a place of perspective. And so the word is telling us that it's only from a place of humility that God establishes this praise for himself. And he proves this, why this is in the second part. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. This refers to God's enemies. And so here we see some a contrast. We know that God has many enemies, but his main enemy is Satan. And so what he's saying is that God welcomes those who come to him in humility, but he rejects those who are the opposite. And so what's the opposite of humility? Pride. What's the opposite of dependence? Self-sufficiency, right? And so God rejects those who come before him with self-sufficiency, prideful, arrogant hearts. And those are all um, attributes of the enemy who is Satan. And the reason why God rejects those who come to him this way, and the reason why God rejected Satan, is because Satan set himself up as someone who was to be in competition with God. You see, Satan looked at himself as someone who could possibly be equal with God. And folks, think about it. That's what got him kicked out of heaven. Satan held a very popular position, a very important position in heaven. He was an archangel. And one day he thought that what he was ascribing to the Lord with the heavenly choir, he was somehow worthy of himself. And so that mindset penetrated his heart and got him to a place where he sought the glory that belonged to God alone because he thought somehow he deserved it right along with God. But it doesn't just stop with Satan. We know that when Satan came down to earth and approached Adam and Eve, his method of temptation for them was the very same approach. Remember what he said? He called God's command into question, right? Which is a defiance of God's authority over them. He called them into question. And then he, he said, God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because he knows that when you do, your eyes will be open. And you get this, here's the hook. You will be like him. Folks, the heart of pride, the heart of Satan himself is a heart that seeks to set itself up as its own God. And those who set themselves up as their own God are not able to ascribe glory to anything or anyone but themselves. And those who think that they are at the same level as God are the ones that will not stand 
in his presence. David's saying it's only those who are like babies before him, who, who come before him weak, who recognize and have a healthy inferiority of themselves. You get that this evening? You understand that the only way we can approach God and give Him the the glory that He is due, the worship that He deserves, is when we understand who we are in relation to Him. Now, so here's my question before we move forward. I wonder tonight how many of us, whether knowingly or unknowingly, approach our worship to God from a prideful, self-centered, arrogant position. Do we somehow compare ourselves to God or place the same amount of emphasis on our lives that would put us at the same stature with Him in our minds. And I know that sounds absurd. I know that that in here you would say, of course not. Can I give you one word, though, that may speak otherwise? And it's a word that I have been guilty of and I've had to repent of and continue to have to confess before the Lord. We, We may not think we're prideful we may not think that we're setting ourselves up as god in our worship but have you ever approached worship with a sense of entitlement we hear the statement i didn't get anything out of worship today how prideful you see when we have this sense of entitlement it's the same thing of satan saying i want what is mine and folks, it's from that heart that our worship is not directed to God. Man, but to ourself. My prayer for us tonight is that we would be a people who worship from the mindset like babies. God, I, I don't know what I have to offer you. I have nothing in and of myself that is worthy to stand before you, but I offer you all that I am. And we approach him with humility and dependence and weakness. Jesus taught this, Matthew 18, right? He says, the kingdom belongs to children. Only those who become like little children can enter in. God has chosen the unlikely, the weak things in his creation to bring him praise, not the things that will try to set themselves up in his place. So the question in my mind is that we see that truth But how do we get there? We just established that our heart is drawn to be our own gods. That's part of the sin nature, right? So how do we get to our, get ourselves rather to a place and our heart in a proper position to offer him acceptable praise? This is where we see the first of three things. And I've used the letter R to help us remember these things. The first thing we've got to do if we're going to put ourselves in a position to offer God acceptable worship is we've got to reflect. We've got to reflect on who we are in relation or in comparison to who God is. That's what David does for us here at verse 3. Listen to what it says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? 
I believe this with all my heart because I see it in my own life at times that one of the biggest hindrances to proper worship in our lives comes as a result of incorrect perceptions of God and also ourselves. A.W. Tozer said that one of the biggest issues with mankind is our perception of who God is. Those who have a low view of God, he says, find that perception leads to hundreds of lesser evils. And what we tend to pair with that low view of God often in our lives is a very high view of ourselves. And so when we have a very low view of God and a very high view of ourselves, we do not see God correctly. We see him like a peer, like us. And when we get in those places, it's like what my, my papa used to say, we get a little too big for our britches. And so the way that we are cured of that misperception about God is to go behold his creation and to reflect on the greatness and the enormity of it. And that's exactly what David does. He says, when I look at your heavens, when I look up in the sky, that word look means to inspect, to notice something, right? Not just merely look up in the sky and say, oh, there's a bunch of stars and, oh, there's the moon. But it's pondering what we see. How did they get up there? How does the moon stay at the right place all the time? How has it not crashed into us? How do these stars shine so brightly every night? And as we put ourselves right in the middle of God's creation, we find that the more we study and reflect on the greatness of his creation, the more we begin to be in awe of this God. And we don't have nearly enough time to illustrate this point effectively, but let me just kind of give you just a little bit of what will bring us to humility in this regard, man. If you and I were to go out tonight and look up at the stars, many of these stars that we're looking at that look like little dots in the sky are actually 1,500 times bigger than our sun. You think about how bright and how big our sun is. We can't look at it without damaging our eyes. But there are stars in the heavens right now. There are 400 billion stars, scientists say, just in our galaxy. And most of them are upwards of 1,500 times bigger than our sun. But to help us grasp what that really means, here's how big our sun is. The sun is 864,000 miles in diameter. That's 109 times bigger than the Earth's diameter. If you do the math, that means that we can fit almost 1.3 million Earths inside of our sun. And the amazing thing about that is our sun is considered teeny tiny compared to most of the stars that we'll see on a given night. But listen to how God is described in comparison to those magnificent stars Isaiah 40 25 and 26 to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him says the holy one lift up your eyes on high and see who created these 
He who brings out the starry hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Folks, get this. We can't even look at one of the smaller stars of our galaxy without damaging our bodies. We can't even stay out in the heat of our sun longer. We'll burn. But yet the Bible says that this God brings them out as their ruler, as their creator. Genesis chapter 1 says that he merely spoke all the stars, the moon, the sun, into existence. Now think about that greatness compared to little old me and you. What are you taking up tonight in this room? You're taking up a chair in a little fellowship hall of a Southern Baptist church in Mayday, North Carolina. Folks, we are insignificant. And I say that in the most loving, truthful, necessary way I can tonight. We are insignificant. This God who threw these stars, these billions of stars into the sky, has named them and controls them. And I love how David describes the work that he does. All of this is the work, not of his hand, but of his fingers. I I get this picture of God hanging the stars in the sky like you and I might hang an ornament on a Christmas tree. Folks, that's that's just space. (laughs) One small part of our galaxy in a universe that is incomprehensible. Folks, when we think about that, it ought to bring us down to size, shouldn't it? That ought to put us in our place concerning God's greatness and our inferiority compared to to him. I think it's interesting that David simply considered the works of God and not God himself. The reason for that is there's no way to even begin to compare ourselves to God. How small we are. And that's what he says. When I look at your creation, what is man that you are mindful of him? David saying, who am I? Who am I? It's very important observation here. This word used for man is enosh, which means frailty or fragile. So when David looks at the expanse of creation and the greatness of it, how big it is, he sees how frail he actually is. This is a man that cut a giant's head off, that fought lions that led armies into battle. And he says, when I look up in your creation, I am weak. I am frail. And he says, who am I that you would even be mindful of me? That word mindful means to remember, to consider, to think about. What David's trying to convey to us tonight is in light of the greatness of God, we shouldn't even be on God's radar. But the truth is, God thinks about us. 
Even in our frailness, we are on his mind. So folks, we got to understand that we can only offer to God appropriate worship when we see him as we should. But not only see him as we should, but see ourselves as we should. And we do this by reflecting on his greatness as it was revealed to us through his creation. And we begin looking at ourselves in comparison to the splendor of the stars that he simply hung in the sky. That is a very humbling thing. And so we reflect on the greatness of God to bring us into this humility. But David takes us deeper. The rest of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5 show us the, the next necessary thing for appropriate worship, which is restoration. Notice David's language in the last part of verse 4. He says, And the Son of Man, that you care for him. You see, just like in verse 1, where David uses two different words for Lord, he uses two different words for man here. The first one, as I mentioned, is Enosh, which means frail man or fragile man. And this refers to, to man's state of being. We are weak compared to God. We are incapable of standing anywhere near his stature. But this other word used here is Adam. The phrase is actually Ben Adam, which means son of Adam. And this is a completely different reference to man. It's a very important difference here that we need to see. And here's the simplified version of what is being explained. The first man created his name was Adam, which means man. And the way that he got his name was from Genesis 1:26, where God said, Let us make man in our own image. Adam means an image bearer. We are image bearers of God. We were created to display the glory of God. And all of us tonight are image bearers of God. That was God's original intent for us. But a problem happened. The enemy, Satan, seeking to come and to bring us to a place where we think we are like God, caused us to fall. We sinned because sin came and separated us from God. We are no longer able to correctly display that glory that we were created to display. And because we can't accurately display that glory, our worship to him cannot be brought forth. We are banished, if you will, from God's presence because of our sin, which is the curse that made us into Enosh, frail, weak human beings. But the power of this verse here is that David's reference is not just this general reference for any man, but one particular man, not the first Adam. But David is prophesying of the coming of the second Adam. Or I heard a pastor say this, the final Adam. And folks, this is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Listen to this. David doesn't know his name, but he's speaking of another image bearer of God who God cares for who God is going to use to absolutely transform mankind into what he originally intended for us to be. This word care here in verse 4 is powerful. 
It means to visit. So listen to this verse. Listen to verse 4 again in this way. Who are we as fragile people that you would think about us or come and visit us in humanity? This is powerful, folks. David is here speaking of the incarnation of Jesus himself. Verse 5 proves it. He says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David says that this man God has made a little lower than the heavenly beings as someone special. Now, there's a little confusion with this, and I want to clear clear this up. The writer of Hebrews, as we'll see in just a minute, uses the word low, uh, heavenly beings to refer to angels, which is not completely inaccurate. But it must under, we must understand that it doesn't uh, refer to rank, but in proximity, location. And so if we say that this man became a little lower than the angels, what he's saying is that he came geographically lower to earth than the angels who are in heaven. But the actual word here that David uses in verse 5 is Elohim. Elohim is another name for God. Now stay with me because this is so vital to what David is saying. David's communicating here that God made man a little lower than himself, which would make sense since we are created in the image of God. But the, but the writer of Hebrews really expounds upon what exactly David is saying. Hebrews 2 Verse 5 through 9 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? But you made, for, made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, who is he talking about? Verse 9, Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The writer of Hebrews just preached this message of Psalm 8 to us here. And he tells us who David is referring to in verses 4 and 5. Here's what he's saying. God became a man. He took on flesh. Philippians chapter 2 says that he, by being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He laid his deity down. God became a man. And he visited humanity. Folks, I want you to grasp this. This is so powerful. The reason why God became man in the form of his son, Jesus, was so that he could come and dwell among us to take on human flesh, to change locations for a little while, so that he could come and die for the sins of the world that separated us from his glory and our purpose as worshipers of God. So you have made Jesus come down, David says, to restore what was broken 
by the first Adam. And his reward, David says, for doing that was he is crowned with glory and honor. Folks, listen, that glory is not for us. It's for Jesus. It's for the one who restored our relationship with God through his death, burial, and resurrection on a cross. And it's only because of that restoration that you and I are able to correctly worship God. But through the gospel and through this restoration, we have hope that we will again and are now through his blood offering to God acceptable worship that he deserves. But it's only through the restoration that he brought forth through his son. But as we pour out our praise to God through our restored relationship with him, Jesus is crowned with more glory and honor. So folks, I want you to understand this tonight. True worship to God is possible only through the avenue of restoration that Jesus alone provides. We cannot worship apart from Jesus. And this leads me to our final point, that when we do worship in this restored state, God has promised some things for us. Look at verses 6 through 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts in the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So now what we see is that there is this dominion restored to creation. Jesus has been given that authority to reign over his creation. And all creation now is giving God glory and praise because of the restoration of Jesus. But here's amazing news for us tonight. With Jesus' authority to reign, he has given us as his people the privilege to reign with him. David says that because the Son of Man's crowning achievement brought God glory and honor, which was his death on the cross, he's now set him as ruler over the works of his own hands. And so he is reigning in authority. But because we are identified with Christ, we are joined with him through his work. The Bible says that we become co-heirs with Christ. That means that we are sons and daughters of God. And we are set in a place of value over all creation by God himself. And we're given this special place as God's image bearers to give him glory in very particular ways. Folks, we have the privilege tonight of being judges over his creation. 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says that. He says we will even judge angels. What a privilege we have this privilege only because of what Jesus has come down and done for us. And so when we understand that truth, we shouldn't respond with arrogance or pride or entitlement. When we understand what's been given to us through God, that he would consider us, that he would be mindful enough of us to give us his own son, Jesus, it should fill us with humility, with praise, devotion that the great I am had regard for us enough to give us this privilege of reigning with his son forever and so as we understand the greatness of God and this invitation that's been given to us as his children 
it prompts us to worship in a way that comes from the depths of our souls, that honors Him and glorifies Him with humility and hope and gratitude. Which David doesn't end this psalm without reminding us of that one more time. He comes back to verse 9, which is the refrain of the beginning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This song of worship begins and ends with who? God. Folks, that is a worship song that we should sing. So David, let's tie this all together. David teaches us the act of true worship to God involves first getting our hearts and minds in the proper perspective of humility and devotion and selflessness, just like a child. And the way that we get there is by reflecting on the greatness and glory of God and our inferiority and smallness compared to Him. And as we get to that place and we understand why we are so frail, our hearts turn toward the beauty of restoration through the gospel, which brings about this privilege of eternal reign, which overflows from our heart to our lips in a song of praise. So this psalm teaches us that worship starts first in our souls, then adjusts our minds and stirs our heart and then fills our mouth with the truths of God. And it comes out as a beautiful song of declaration of the amazing things about this God. So let me point something to you and we're done. On the back of your handout, I've put two songs. One of them you may, you should know very well. We sing it here, but another one you probably don't know. It's an old hymn. These two are examples of what worship songs should look like because they follow this same progression. Each each one of these songs has um, a moment of reflection of the greatness of God and who we are. And then it, it has a declaration of the restoration that we have experienced through the gospel of Jesus. And then we sing finally of our reign with him. And so my, my prayer is that you would take these home tonight and just study them out. Really look at the words and what is being conveyed in these songs. And I pray that we would see that our worship should be no less than what David has offered here. Folks, I pray we see that worship starts way before the first note is ever played or sung. It starts on our face, getting our hearts in the right perspective. Recognizing who we are. And what He has done for us. And if we'll get our mind and our heart in that place, what will come from that will be a worship that He is pleased with, that glorifies Him, that fulfills our purpose as His creation. And I pray that we will be a people who sing that way. Let's pray.